For those of you who are uh, here with me last week, can I get this first bank of lights on? The old eyes just aren't what they used to be. Thank you. Started a new series, um, Words in Red. And we're looking at the things that Jesus specifically said in the Bible. I mean, the whole Bible is God's word. But when he spoke, that seems special to us. It is special. And so we're looking at much of what he specifically said himself. And um, before we get into this morning's words in red, I'm going to read to you a couple of Bible script passages, and I'm going to see if they sound familiar to you. Here's the first one. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. How many of you know this verse? You've heard it. Let me see your hands. Okay, some of you. I memorized this one. I don't remember why. I think I probably had a stack of navigator memory cards, and I, just, I think this was one of them, and I, and I like it. This one probably more of you have heard. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, if this one sounds familiar, let me see your hands. All right, more of you, but not all of you. A lot of people quote this one. They reference this one. When things are going bad, they'll say, hey, God says he'll never let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But there's a context. And scripture is dangerous without context sometimes. It's unhealthy. And it leads us to expect things that don't happen. And when they don't happen, our faith gets scandalized. By scandalized, I'm talking about the Greek word scandalon, which is a stumbling stone. We claim or rest on a promise of scripture and it doesn't come true for us. And then we're left to wonder, what just happened? How did God let me down? And if God can let me down with this passage, maybe I shouldn't trust any of it. When what often happens is we misunderstood the passage, we grabbed a hold of something that we weren't supposed to grab a hold to, at least not in that context, and we're left grasping smoke and thinking that God has let us down. Well, these two passages of Scripture, which are amazing, which you should memorize, but they do have a a, a context. Like this one, it says, um, with the temptation, he'll also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Bear it. So the escape doesn't mean you're escaping the trouble, it just means you're surviving it. That right there is different than most of us understand. You know that passage of scripture? It's read at almost every funeral. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, so comforting. Then we get to the part that doesn't comfort me as much as people. I must not be people. It says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How about I don't go through the valley of the shadow of death at all? I don't want to go through it. The scripture doesn't say you won't go through it. This doesn't say you'll escape. It says you'll be able to bear it. Little context changes the meaning. And then the verse right before, put them together. It says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Some people get themselves into trouble because they're not on their guard. Maybe we would have never gotten to verse 13 if we paid attention to verse 12. Context, context. Well, there's a bigger context. 
Let me read more of it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just read to you 12 and 13. Let's read from verse 5, and we'll see how the content changes the meaning. Uh, We're going back to Israel's ancient history. Paul's referencing back to the wilderness wanderings where Israel was faithless and God made them wander through the wilderness for 40 years till he brought them to the promised land. It says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Messiah, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So putting it all together, and I'm I'm only on page two here. We've got a ways to go. But all together so far, the context seems to be saying that these temptations, specifically Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and grumbling are common to all people, all places, at all times. And if you think you're beyond the reach of these four temptations, be careful. You might fall. These temptations are common, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted to do these things without also providing an escape from the temptation. And let me point out again, the very first provision was in verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Ever seen those signs that say, caution, slippery when wet? If you go running through there and slip and crack your head, whose fault is that? That's yours. The sign was right there. It said, be careful, and you decided not to be careful. They warned you. Well, that's kind of how the Bible is. It says, uh, don't do this, and you go running through. And sh- but I tell you, there's one that gets my goat. These gravel trucks that say not responsible for damage. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> don't fall for that. They drop a rock and it cracks your windshield. You write down their driver's license. I mean, their plate number, because they are responsible. They're not allowed to dr- drop junk on you just because they say, hey, I'm allowed to drop junk on you. That doesn't give them the right. We've got to be careful, though. All right, so there are four specific temptations mentioned. Idolatry, and you say, man, Steve, I'm not tempted with idolatry. That's for people in India. But greed is a form of idolatry. When you love something and pursue it over God, that's idolatry. And in our country, maybe idolatry is bigger than it is in India. Or just as big, because the population of the United States is roughly the same size, seriously, as the number of gods in India. There's over 300 million gods in India. And what's the population of the United States? Somewhere around 300 million. So when you think of India being idolatrous, 
he that thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Well, that's one none of us tempt. We don't have that problem. Let's move on. Testing Messiah and grumbling. We've talked about idolatry and sexual immorality many times in the recent past. And I don't have time to look at all four of these. But we do have time to look at testing the Messiah or testing God and grumbling. And this is what brings us to our words in red. Let me read to you last week's as it, through the context, folds into this week's words in red. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. We're going to look at what that means, don't test God. That's the title of today's message today, by the way, don't test God. But before we do... Growing up, like most of you, spent a good portion of my life watching TV. And I don't remember what movie this was. It was probably several of them where there's somebody who's possessed, and they always call in a Catholic priest. I wonder why. Why don't they call in a rabbi? And he holds up a star at David, and the vampire goes running or something, you know? It's always the crucifix or a cross, and it's always the priest. And when he holds up the cross or a Bible... The possessed person, they can't handle the Bible. They can't handle the cross. And he touches them with the Bible and it burns them and they run screaming. The prince of demons studies the Bible. The Bible doesn't scare him off. That's juvenile. That's fun. That's entertainment. That's Hollywood, but that's nonsense. He's having a biblical debate with Jesus, quoting the scripture. How does he know the scripture? Obviously, he studies it. It doesn't chase him off. He uses it to twist people. You realize all these phony religions, these cults that claim to be Christian and aren't, they're demon-inspired. They use the Bible, these people, all the time. They will knock on your door, and they will have a copy of it in their hands. It's not burning their hands either. They study it too. All right, so here's the devil quoting scripture to Jesus. And by the way, he quoted it right. He didn't like take it way out of context and twist it and pervert it and make it say something it didn't say. The scripture said God protects his people, specifically the Messiah. So this is what he told Jesus. God said he'd protect you, but he was using it to get Jesus to sin, to test God. See, there's more than just the one verse that God protects people. There's the other verse that basically says, don't be stupid. Don't put God to the test. But what exactly does that mean, don't put God to the test? In order to understand that, we're going to have to go back. Here we have Jesus being tempted by the devil. And he quotes a passage of the scripture from what happened back in the wilderness, children of Israel, all those years ago. So let's go back 
to what happened there where Jesus quotes from and see if we can learn a little bit more about what people do who test God so we can understand what testing God means. Because I guarantee you, you do not know the fullness of what it means to test God. I had no idea the Bible said so much about it until studying for this lesson. And this is not the first time I have studied through Matthew. But this is the first time I said, you know what? I want to know what it really means to test God. So let me tell you what I came up with. But first, let's look at Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord and said, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, test and quarrel, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? All right, so what is testing God? Just in this set of passages, I found three elements. First one, first element of testing God is complaining and rebelling instead of praying and trusting. So God takes these people and he sends Moses to them. And Moses proves he's from God. He's not some phony charlatan by doing miracles. You know, he, he puts his hand into his shirt, pulls it out, and it's leprosy. Puts it back in, takes it out, and it's clean. He takes a stick, he throws it down, and it turns into a snake. He goes out and confronts Pharaoh. He turns the Nile River into blood. Everybody's swimming pool, everybody's sink, everybody's bathtub, every puddle in their front yard, he turns it all to blood. The whole land of Egypt. To prove he's true representative of God. And God says, let my people go. That was the first. And then he ends up doing 10 plagues on top of that. Then he takes the children of Israel out of slavery after 400 years of bondage, brings them up against the Red Sea. They're trapped. The Egyptian army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. They whine, they complain. God says to Moses, why are you whining to me? Just open it up. <laughs> so Moses lifts up his staff. The water opens. The people walk through on dry ground. The water collapses on the Egyptian army. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that they saw. Now they're thirsty. What should they do? Say, God, we're out of water. Would you please help? And God will give them water. But no, they decide they're going to yell at Moses. They're going to whine at God, and they're going to threaten to kill him. I think they got the wrong approach. I'm just saying. Something's wrong with this picture here. The first element of testing God is complaining and rebelling instead of praying and trusting. 
They had every reason to trust God. God had already shown himself strong on their part. He just, what did he do? Rescue you out of Egypt with all these miracles so you could die of thirst in the wilderness? How stupid are you? It's a test. And they failed miserably. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever complained instead of prayed? Yeah. Don't feel bad. You're like everybody else. No temptation has overtaken you except for that which is common to man. You've done it. I've done it. Maybe not as bad as they did it. That's the first element. Second element of testing God is thanklessly ignoring God's history of miraculous provision in the light of a present crisis. Let me say that again. Thanklessly ignoring God's history of miraculous provision in light of a present crisis. Have you ever been in a crisis? Yeah. Has God ever delivered you from a crisis? If so, let me see your hands. Okay. Now, if God has delivered you from the crisis and then you went into another crisis and then panicked and complained and didn't pray, let me see your hand. Yeah. Maybe uh, no temptation has overtaken you except for that which is common to man. Done that, been there. Maybe not on the level of those people in the wilderness, but maybe I'm just trying to feel better and maybe I'm no better than they are. Third element of testing God is questioning God's love and questioning God's commitment or your commitment to God, either one, under duress. If God loved me, he wouldn't. If you've ever questioned God's love for you under duress, you brave enough to put up your hand? <laughs> yes. Ah. We find it easy to trust God when things are smooth. Let me rephrase that. It's easy to trust God when we don't need to trust God. But it's really hard to trust God when we, you got it, need to trust God. I mean, when things are bad, that's when trust matters. But life is bad a lot, often. And if you don't believe that, would you make me your best friend? Because one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to change your mind or you're going to change mine. And uh, hopefully you'll change mine. Life is bad. Watch the news. Talk to the person sitting next to you in church. Ask them how many loved ones they've lost. Ask them how many friends are addicts. Ask them how many friends are dying of cancer right now. Oh, life is bad. And these pastors who come on the TV and write books and just talk about life being good, please don't waste your time with them. They are not doing you any good. They are feeding you a line that you're gonna grab a hold of, and like I said at the beginning of the sermon, you're gonna find out you're disappointed, and you're gonna feel God let you down. When they didn't, it was that bad pastor who gave you a bunch of hooey from the Bible and tried to make you think it was all, you know, everything in life is gonna be good and happy. But everything in life is not good and happy. Jesus died on a Roman cross. Was he good and happy? Which prophets weren't murdered? What about the Christians being executed right now by ISIS? What about all the poor people in our country? We could talk about this on and on. Am I trying to make you a down person? No, I'm just pointing out what's reality. Let me tell you what a true man of God would say. 
In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, in this world, since I died for your sins, everything's gonna be nice and like candy land. He didn't say that. In this world, it's really tough unless you pray to me and I'll make all your troubles always go away and everything will be nice like candy land. No, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Can you think of a rougher word? You will, but don't let it destroy you. Don't let it get you down because I've overcome the world. We've got a great and glorious future together. And you know what? Even though life is bad, I had breakfast this morning. Ah, Let me go back. I was snuggled like a bug in a rug. It was cold last night, but I was on a soft memory foam mattress with three blankets, happy, (laughs) snuggy. So I didn't want to get out of bed this morning. My room was cold, but the bed was nice. And just when I thought I had to get out of bed into a cold room, the heater turned itself on like magic. (laughs) And the room got warm. It was amazing. And then I got up and I was thirsty. And you know what I did? I didn't pray. I just went over to the the, the water fountain, took a drink, faucet, you know, the sink. There we go. Took a drink. And then I had to micturate. Jackie's the only one who got it in the whole room. I had to go pee. I didn't have to go outside, walk through the snow, hope there were no bears and sit on a cold outhouse or squat behind a bush like so many people throughout the world have to do. I just walked into another warm room and then it flushed all the way. See, I'm not a pessimist. I know life's got some good things to it. I'm thankful for every one of those things I just shared with you. I truly am. And then I realized, you know what? I'm hungry. I think I'll go downstairs and have breakfast. What am I going to have? And I had so many options. Oatmeal, burritos, tamales, leftover pasta, leftover rice, a whole bunch. I'm all out, man. I'm all out of M&Ms. I was so sad last night. I almost called my wife and on the way home. I said, can you get some? But I didn't do it. Almost did it. So much stuff. Third element of testing God is questioning God's love and commitment under duress. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, says Jesus. He has overcome the world, and he will do it for us as well. What is testing God? Bible professor Ron Julian says this. To test God is to look at today's difficulties and say, a loving God would never let me suffer in this way. Maybe if things get better, then I can trust him. To test God is to ask, as Israel did, is God with us or not? God has shown us that he is with us. He has nothing to prove to us. If we refuse to see it, we're as blind as Israel was in the wilderness. Thank you, Bible professor Ron Julian, for ruining my day and telling me I'm just as miserable as the children of Israel were in the wilderness because I've done those things. Well, I have no doubt that many of you right now are going through a trial, something that's testing your faith. Some of you, I know your trial because you've confided in me. Others, I just know because I read Facebook. (laughs) A lot of you are going through stuff right now. And those of you who are not going through something right now are, are thankful because you just went through something not too long ago. 
and you're wondering when the next shoe will drop because you know you'll be going through something very soon. Two nights ago, no, it was last night. Anyway, I get an email from my cousin, my first cousin. We were children. We played together. We lived near each other. He said, um, dad's at hospice. Uh, he's got lung cancer. And I taped an interview with him. Here's a link to the tape of me saying goodbye to dad. Well, I have to listen. So I'm listening to him as he's breaking up, starting to cry, and asking his dad how the family he thinks could get by without him. It was horrible, but it was glorious too. He said he was so thankful, so few people get to actually just say goodbye like they're having right now. And then it ended up with them all in tears saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, just over and over and over again, and that was the end of it. And I was like, oh man, I was so broken. And I was trying to be manly and not let the tears flow. But they were. And it's my uncle. So what do I do? I do this when I'm sad. I listen to great music. Let's see if we can get this song up.
like the rest of you, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and fix all this grief we have. But in the meantime, we've got to keep our eyes on him and not fall into the same trap that these children of Israel fell into. Because no temptation is overtaking you except which is common to man. So take heed lest you fall. Let me give you a couple more elements I found on testing God from the wilderness story. Numbers 14 says, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So I gave you the first three, the next two, number four and five, Fourth element of testing God is disobeying him. And the fifth element of testing God is treating him with contempt. I came up with one, two, three more. And then I found five more. And then I stopped studying. I realized, wow, I had no idea there was so much. And I've got enough. I've got too much just for this lesson already. So what is... Putting God to the test. What are the elements? So far, complaining and rebelling instead of trusting and praying. Second one is thanklessly ignoring God's history of miraculous provision in light of a present crisis. The third one, questioning God's love, commitment under duress. The fourth one, testing God is disobeying God. And the fifth one is treating him with contempt. Maybe out of these five, I can easily cop to four. I'm sure if I studied the fifth one, I'd end up copping to that one too. But I don't need to. I've already failed, so what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Sixth element of testing God comes from the book of Hebrews. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said in their hearts, they're always going astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in anger, they will never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The sixth one is having a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the, un, uh, the living God. <laughs> Pardon me. <coughs> For time's sake, I've got to skip forward. I'm going to pass up number seven. Trust me, we probably failed on it to go to this one. First Corinthians 10.10, 10. do not grumble as some of them did 
and were killed by destroying angels. Do not grumble. You remember last week, somebody came up to me this morning and quoted what I said last week. That's cool. When you can remember something a whole week, I don't remember things a whole week, but I remember this one too. Be humble, don't grumble. Be humble, don't grumble. So we talked about that last week, but I want to talk a little bit more about it, and then I'll finish up. What exactly is grumbling? Apparently, God was not pleased with their grumbling in the wilderness. It's mentioned several times, and they ended up getting shafted for it, punished for it. Grumbling. Here's what the Greek word means from Thayer's Dictionary of Greek Words. To murmur, mutter, grumble, say anything against in a low tone. Say something against in a low tone. Immediately, you know, tell them what's what. That's grumbling. Then it says, the cooing of doves. It's the same Greek word. Oh, it's interesting. Maybe because it's all done in the throat too. I don't know. Those who confer secretly together. Those who discontentedly complain. So I'm reading a book by an expert on church health and church growth. And he says, no matter how big the church is, a small church or a mega church, when the church divides, it's usually because of a group of people no more than roughly 10 people. They get together, they start complaining, and they grumble, and they mutter, and then they start sowing discord. You know, it's an interesting thing that he came up with that number, probably by total accident. I don't know. He just looked at the data and said it's around that number. But we've been looking at the wilderness, right? And they grumbled in the wilderness. You remember what happened, what started the whole thing? Go take the promised land, I give it to you. Well, let us send out a representative from every tribe to scope out the land so we know how to go in and where to go and how to take it. So Moses picked somebody from each of the 12 tribes and they sent out 12 men to spy out the land. The guys come back and 10 of them said, we can't do this. This land is filled with walled cities populated by giants. If we go in there, we will die. I could see the drama. And they grumbled. Now that's only 10 guys, right? But they started influencing the rest of the children of Israel. You know how many people there were? There were millions. It's kind of like turning on CNN and listening to a bad report. Next thing you know, everybody believes what they say. And they start grumbling and complaining. And it's all gloom and doom. And we can't do it. And we can't do it. And they spoke stronger and louder and better than Joshua and Caleb, the other two, who said, we can do this. Look, at God has been with us up to this point. Trust him. But the trust him crowd lost, and the mumble grumble crowd won. And they didn't go into the promised land. And the end result is they spent 40 years walking around in the wilderness grumbling until they all died off so God could take a whole new generation that didn't grumble and put them into the promised land. Grumbling's contagious. You know, ask Pastor Nick or Pastor Michael. Ask anybody who's been to any church for any length of time if grumbling's an issue within the church. Grumbling is an issue. Attendees at churches nowadays, people who go to church, they're like movie critics. Yeah, you know, I went into the services and the music was a little too loud and uh, didn't quite like the song selection. Sermon would have been a little better if there were more illustrations and less Bible verses, and it went on too long. 
And then, uh, you know, they didn't serve popcorn. Oh, yeah, I used to go to that church, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> all of us, all of us. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Take heed. Let me read to you some of the common grumbles I hear. These are the common ones. I don't want to share with you the others because then somebody's going to do like she just did and say yikes and think I'm preaching against them, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to make it individually personal. I just want you to take it and do what you want with it. But I hear grumbles all the time. Grumbling is probably the number one reason that I needed sabbatical. So here's some of the silly little ones that I hear all the time, not the bigger ones. The service was too long. The service was too short. Same service. (laughs) The sermon was too long. The sermon was too short. The room is too hot. The room is too cold. The pastors aren't friendly enough. The people at your church are hypocrites. And I always tell them, one more is not going to hurt. <clears throat> and yet they don't come back. <laughs> your services start too early. Your services run too late. Your services start too late. Eight elements of grumbling. Like I said, I had about five more I didn't have time to get into. So Jesus was being tempted by the devil, and he said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. One of the ways in which we do that is grumbling. Let me give you the list so you can go home with it. Eight elements of testing God, complaining and rebelling instead of praying and trusting thanklessly ignoring God's amazing previous miraculous provisions in light of a present crisis, questioning God's love and commitment under duress, disobeying him, treating him with contempt, having an unbelieving heart that turns away from God, setting our hearts on evil things, grumbling. So is it my intention to send you home this morning feeling guilty and miserable and saying, you know what, Steve, I've done almost all of those things. No, not at all. Be of good cheer, said Jesus. I have overcome the world. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He just wants you aware of them and to stop doing them. So this isn't about condemnation. This is about stopping and starting. And his mercies are new every morning. You just stop, you know, Lord, Out of that list of eight that Pastor Steve read me this morning, I must confess, I think I've broken 10 of them. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. What, what, What more can I say? And grumbling? Oh, God, I do it all the time. All the time. Please help me not do it anymore. And wipe off the tears... Go have some oatmeal and what, Ted? M&M's. Enjoy your hot shower. Praise God for the blessings he's given us and move forward. There's one more thing I want you to do and it's gonna be hard for some of you. And for those of you who it's easy for, maybe you shouldn't do it. Seriously. Hold one another accountable to grumbling. 
I know it's hard. I did it yesterday with a friend of mine of 20 some odd years because anybody else I wouldn't know well enough to do it. You know what I'm saying? You gotta be careful when you try to correct somebody. She took it so graciously. And then after services, I went up and I said something and she said, you're grumbling. She said, you're right, dang. Again, 20 years, and I took it well, and she gave it well. So if you find it easy to correct somebody, don't do it. But if you find it hard, and if they're a good friend of yours, and you hear them grumbling, say, hey, man, you're grumbling. And I expect you to tell me next time I grumble. And all of God's people said, amen.